0: I knew how important personality was in predicting future outcomes. And so I really felt like there was a place for that in financial services. There's a place for understanding personality. And you know, we do it in a very efficient way, but certainly advisors are doing it all the time through observation and interviews and things like
1: that. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else. We all have a relationship with money, and for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-Word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast. I am your host, Sean Maslick. I am excited for you to hear this wonderful conversation with Dr. Sarah Stanley Falah. She's the author of The Next Millionaire Next Door and founder of Data Points, which is a behavioral assessment advisory company. Dr. Falah continues to focus on the study of self-made millionaires. Who are these individuals? How did they grow their wealth? And for the most part, I think it goes against what we think. For many of us, we think that generational wealth is the ticket to creating more wealth in our millionaires. We feel like these are the millionaires, the ones who have been handed this money. Well, her research and her father's research certainly point to a different direction. Her late father, Dr. Thomas Stanley, wrote the classic book, The Millionaire Next Door, I remember my father gave me that book when I was entering university. That book continues to impact my way of thinking in my own money story. During this conversation, we talk about many valuable insights, such as who are the actual wealthy people, these millionaires? Are they self-made or were they individuals who just had that money handed to them? Let me give a little hint. It's probably the self-made ones. But we dive into what mindsets do these individuals bring. In fact, we talk about what are the seven traits of millionaires. How does your personality impact wealth? We talk about client money mindsets. How does our money mindsets impact the way we accumulate wealth? And so many other wonderful things in this conversation. I am certain you will enjoy this conversation. Before we get into... The episode, I have a favor to ask. If you've been enjoying the show and would like to support it, you can do it in two ways. Number one, you can go over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast and hit that subscribe button. You can also leave a review while you're there. The second way, if you know someone who may enjoy this conversation, please share this episode with them. And finally, if this episode is one that you enjoy, I suggest maybe going way back to episode number 20 with Dr. Brad Klontz. Dr. Klontz has done a lot of work and continues to do a lot of work on who self-made millionaires are. So if you find this episode interesting, I am certain you will find episode number 20 with Dr. Brad Klontz interesting as well. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Sarah Stanley Falal. Dr. Falah, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I'm excited to have you. I have been looking forward to this. And I thought we would start with an experience that you had. On this podcast, we kind of circle in and out of the human experience of money. So I thought we would start with your own experiences with money. We know that events in our lives that cause emotions, our bodies to remember them, and we starts to shape how we think, feel, and believe about certain things. In the context of money, Dr. Brad Klontz talks about these as our financial flashpoints. Let's talk about perhaps one of your financial flashpoints when you were in Las Vegas playing blackjack.
0: (laughs) Yes, and thought that I could win against the house. Of course. Right, so shortly after 9-11, my husband and I traveled to Las Vegas for the first time. I'd never been there and i think it was like the night before we had won you know something some some amount of money not not nothing significant and so it was the day we were leaving i said you know what i can do this again so i'm going to pop down you know before we get ready to go and started playing blackjack and almost couldn't stop i won't say that you know i was addicted or something like that but certainly kept thinking that i was going to win and unfortunately, what I did was lost all the money that we won, and then some probably. And you know that experience taught me certainly that there's an emotional side to money. Not that I wasn't aware of that, but it certainly helped me see it from a firsthand perspective. So I'm not really proud of that moment, but it was absolutely a learning experience to have to come back and say, well... Not sure where that went, you know, to to someone that's a little more, let's just say composed and perhaps higher on emotional stability than I am. So that was an interesting experience.
1: Have you been back to Vegas? No, (laughs) no,
0: no, no, no. New Orleans, but I did not gamble. Yep.
1: New Orleans is a fun place. Oh, now I'm thinking about the food. Culture, music.
0: Sorry. Yeah. Uh, it was the sugar bowl for us for the University of Georgia. So we were down uh, there for that.
1: You know, yes. I'm Canadian. And when he said sugar bowl, I'm like, sugar. What is a sugar, sugar bowl? bowl? But but football. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yes, 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 yes.
1: So I want to talk about, definitely want to get into data points and the the work that you guys are doing on personality types. But first mm-hmm. I thought we would talk about your father. He mm-hmm. published many, many books in our industry. We know the millionaire next door was a a book that really helped people change their perspective towards what millionaires are. I actually remember my dad giving me a copy of this book when I was a kid, and there's two books. One was The Wealthy Barber, which is a Canadian Mm -hmm. book, and Mm -hmm. then The the Millionaire Next Door. That kind of is a, I guess, financial flashpoint for me because, yeah, just what the care that my father had in the way that I saw money. But it gets me to think about Just how much our parents have an influence on our socialization when it comes to money. When you reflect back on your father, before the book, like you started getting involved, what impacts, if any at all, do you see that he had on you now that you're an adult? From back, like I said, before you were getting involved in this work?
0: Yeah, you know, he was such an, I guess, an interesting character. I don't, I I guess I can use that term. And, you know, certainly had a life experience that was not like the experience that my brother and I had. You know, he grew up in a blue collar environment in New York, had very few kind of advantages, if you will. And so had that life experience. And I think, you know, he certainly talked about that experience. So we could, you know, recognize that we had a, a different kind of life, if you will. And so I think that that left an impression on me. I think at the same time, you know, he did recognize and his research was sort of a lifetime of research. So he was talking about these kinds of things even before he wrote The Millionaire Next Door, but just helping us to recognize that, you know, again, you can't judge a book by its cover, right? We hear that all the time, but it's really, really true when it comes to wealth. And like you were sharing, you know, Brad Klont certainly sees that in the work that he's done for whatever reason, depending on life experiences and personality, many of us want to share some kind of status, whether we have it or not with others. And so that often takes the form of making purchases that perhaps we shouldn't. So he was very attuned to that, shared that with us. And I think that that helped me to understand kind of at this sort of high level, how wealth can be displayed or how it can be faked if you will. And so I think that that certainly had a, an, ex, you know, an impact on,
1: on me. Hmm. So then you're, you're in college and he releases this book, The Millionaire Next Door. Right. Two, two parts of this question. At what point did you start to get interested in what he was doing? And what did this book with all his research, because I, 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 like you said, it's a lifetime of research, not just like leading up to that book. But what did he teach us about who millionaires are.
0: Yeah. So I was in college when that book came out, pretty self-focused, uh, <laughs> self-centered, if you will, I'll put it that way. And certainly, you know, he would share with us how, how it was going and, you know, share with us the New York Times lists and things like that. He would fax them to me at college <laughs> or send them, it was great, or he would get them faxed and then send them, send a hard copy to me where I was living. So that was interesting to see, you know, it kind of again, I don't think that I recognize the kind of the impact that it was having. But, you know, again, that book was focused on one segment of the affluent population in the United States at the time. And it was the segment that was self-made. And he found that again through his work, you know, with financial institutions who were trying to find wealthy individuals, right? Like where can I find all the rich people? And so you know, he would often in focus groups bring a bunch of clients and folks and business owners and things like that. And, you know, he often would share the story that, you know, he'd have the the best wines and the caviar and nice stuff there in these focus groups, right? And they'd be like, you know, where's the Budweiser, right? Where's the, you know, where's the sandwich? Like, I don't, I don't need this stuff. And again, that entire book was about those folks, right? So individuals that were able to take some level of income, whether that was through a business that they owned, that's often the case, or through, you know, again, just working for others, teachers, accountants, things like that, and transform that income into wealth and kind of the, the, in essence, the behavioral patterns, if you will, of, you know, self-made millionaires. And so the entire book was about that. He went on to write books about those that were even higher in terms of net worth, so like decamillionaires. Millionaires, and then he focused on women who are often business owners and things like that. But The Millionaire Next Door tends to be the one that that folks know the most, or it's the most well known. And again, I think it taught all of us that there, there was a different way to think about wealth and how wealth is created.
1: The word choice you used to describe your father of interesting is still sitting with me.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: I think that interesting mindset it was so beneficial that to the last point there it helped us think differently of who millionaires are. You talked about behavioral patterns. Can you speak to some maybe consistent behavioral patterns that you guys have seen whether it's from the 96 book to the 2018 or his other books that you talk about the deck of millionaires or the female entrepreneurs?
0: Right. Yeah, so you know a lot of those have to do and when we say behavioral patterns we just mean again you know, it's pretty straightforward, but it's, you know, how am I making decisions about different purchases or the where I live and things like that? And what do those patterns look like? And so some of them include, you know, again, things like being frugal, right? You know, being economic in the way that you're making decisions, doing a lot of research, refraining from buying cars when maybe it's not the best time. Like, you know, right now in our family, we're trying to, we have, we're about to have four drivers in our family and thinking about used cars and even used cars right now are are expensive here in the US, right? So patterns of behavior that demonstrate kind of a, a focus on ensuring that you're making the best economic decisions, right? That's that frugality piece. And then others, you know, kind of align with things like not worrying about what other people think. So there's an entire kind of concept in the book as well as, again we can think about this just in our own lives related to ignoring what your neighbors are doing doing driving and wearing is kind of the way that that i put it and that becomes even harder with social media i see that particularly with you know we have three almost teenage girls and we can certainly see that you know again having social media makes all of that much harder even for adults not just certainly not just teenagers yeah, so it's it's really a pattern of making financial decisions in light of your own goals and goals for your household versus consumer behavior of the people around you. And if you can do that for your your lifetime, you know, there's a higher likelihood that you're going to be able to transform your income into wealth. So those are some of the things that kind of stick out to
1: me. You know, it's very interesting as you you list through those, I'm curious with your your background in psychology, it seems to me that you're talking about things that are more cultivated within, like cultivating this agency in themselves is because I can mm-hmm. focus on do I have Bud Light or Caviar? Do I pick a used car versus a brand new car? It seems to me that a lot of what they're focusing on is this internal self-control or maybe locus of control is a better mm-hmm. word. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you guys notice? Is there not so much? The, the stories aren't they pick this best stock or all these external things. Right.
0: Absolutely. So one of the components or characteristics of individuals that can transform income into wealth, whether they're millionaires yet or not, tends to be their ability or rather, I should say, their viewpoint that they, in essence, control their financial destiny. Religious beliefs aside and all of that, if we believe we have some kind of control and ability to make financial decisions on our own and, and can control some of the outcomes of what we do, we'll have a higher likelihood of being financially successful. So that goes back, like you said, to locus of control and all the research that goes along with that. Those of us who have this internal view, the internal locus of control do end up being more financially successful. And that's compared to those that view really things that happen to them as being outside of their control, right? It's other people in my family or, you know, my neighbors or my job or my career. And I will say this because we hear this from financial advisors who use our assessments that often when they're working with clients who have had early traumatic life experiences, they can view things that are simply out of their control. And so that's something I think from a financial therapy perspective that has to be overcome in order to um, often to achieve wealth. If, if you have that perspective and, and certainly it's it's warranted. Right. If you've had that kind of experience.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that was a, a good statement at the end. It's warranted at sometimes before we move on. Would you this is a blanket statement and I know those are not always effective, but would you say that these self-made millionaires are more attuned to their own feelings and emotions?
0: You know, it's hard for me to say that if you look back at, particularly for the studies that were done prior to the 96 book, a lot of those individuals were, you know, for lack of a better term, salt of the earth, right? So they, were, you know, they're junk metal dealers. They They just simply kind of put themselves to work, they create a business. I wouldn't necessarily say that they're in touch with their feelings, but they are, you know, focused. And again, they're ignoring kind of what's going on around them. But I would say today that might be a little bit different. I can't say for sure that we have research demonstrating that, but I think again, going back to the example of blackjack, had I been sort of aware of what was happening in my own kind of emotions and head, I might've been able to stop myself, right? While I was ahead to say, hey, I'm getting really kind of caught up in this. I'm making irrational decisions, but like saying that I could beat the house, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, that I can <laughs> actually win, you know, maybe it's time to stop. So that might be kind of true as we're thinking about, again, a lot of the social pressures, for example, that are on, on us today.
1: Especially the wild world of social media and the pressures right. it creates in and in yes. itself. So two decades go by, you and your father decide to collaborate on the, the next millionaire next door. What was percolating in your mind that drove you to be like, hey, I don't know if this is what you said, but hey, dad, let's write another book. Let's update this.
0: Well, he certainly was focused on that, that, you know, he was the author and that was his area of expertise. And I was really there to help with the data analysis, the survey research. You know, that's really my my strength and and what I focus on. And so we began that process. But unfortunately, again, along the way, he was killed in in a car wreck. And so I kind of had to take up that side, right, of things of being the author and analyzing the data and pulling together the stories. Thankfully, he had left a lot of information and notes, and we had had a lot of conversations about it. So we, I was able to finish it. But yeah, that's kind of how that happened. It was more, hey, I'm going to do this. You know, you want to be a part of this, but fate had a different plan. And so my role kind of changed in that. But I think, you know, what was interesting about the follow up and Interesting from a psychologist perspective, but maybe not from a publisher's perspective, was there's not a lot different, right? Like how many times can we say be frugal and you know, be Mm -hmm. confident and not worry about what your neighbors think, right? But I think for anyone that's really working on building and accumulating wealth, it's a great story to hear that things haven't changed, right? I, I don't have to do something special, I don't have to look a certain way, I don't have to be of a certain, you know, background or whatever it might be these things are timeless in terms of, again, the behavioral patterns that are required to accumulate wealth.
1: I think it's fantastic that the message is the same. <laughs> I right. always be like, uh-oh, time right. to change things. <laughs> if,
0: if things did change, it would be like, well, what would have changed, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: I can't imagine the feeling of publishing that book after everything that happened with your father. Yeah. And must have been a surreal feeling to actually hit publish.
0: It definitely was. It was a labor of love. It was a little bittersweet to, you know, you know, Ed Combs, the first time I met Ed Combs from financial therapy and healthy love and money, I mentioned to him that he was becoming my, all of a sudden my therapist at a conference (laughs) booth and we were talking about the same experience, but yeah, it was, it was, it was surreal. It's surreal today. I mean, I talked to financial advisors that saw him speak, for example, when he used to be, you know, part of those experiences and, so it continues to be, you know, something that I'm, I'm thankful for because he certainly, you know, led the way in this area. But yeah, it's a little surreal.
1: Well, you're continuing on his work, so.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In a different way. Yep.
1: Yeah. And, and actually, I want to speak to that different way, but um, yeah. I had I had Ed on the podcast and I felt like at the end we stopped recording like, whew. I think you were just my therapist there, Ed. So exactly. Ed's got a way of being.
0: He does. I know. He, doesn't, he didn't realize he had so many um, clients. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Right.
1: So, as you were approaching the, the research for the second book, with your way of thinking as a psychologist, how, if anything at all, I know the outcomes were relatively the same, but how, if anything at all, were you approaching the surveys different from this, you know, a psychologist's lens of more? I don't know, was there more emphasis on the human behavior?
0: Yeah, so, you know, traditionally, like in marketing research, for example, they're they're often looking at a lot of like consumer behaviors and patterns of purchases and so forth. And the survey that we used for the latest book certainly had some of that. So things like, you know, stock purchases and cars and things like that. But there was a little more emphasis on life experience as well as things like cognitive biases. So we had an entire section on like investing related mistakes and things like that. And again, my perspective and my background is in psychometrics and, you know, I, with an emphasis on personality and things like that. So I was looking at it through the lens of how can we pull these sort of characteristics and, and survey questions in essence together into different categories, right? And again, frugality was one that what I called social indifference is another, confidence, things like that. So there's a little more emphasis on the psychology side and even on the kind of career development side as well.
1: So from these books, you're now thinking about, I guess, what you're going to do, or I guess it was before <laughs> the second book that you started Data Points, but you really are interested from what I understand is personality types. How did that interest turn into data points? What's the origin of, I guess, the research to data points?
0: Again, he had conducted surveys for a long, long time. And those questions that he included looked a lot like personality test questions or what we would call bio data questions, right? They were asking about life experiences and things like that. And so I began kind of looking at all of his data and research and survey instruments and began creating items and tests, essentially, like personality tests that would help uncover someone's ability to transform income into wealth. And so that's where data points came from. The first test we published, we launched at XYPN Live in 2016 with our, what we call the Building Wealth Test. And it's a way to understand your patterns of behavior as they relate to six different areas that predict net worth, essentially. So it started with that. And the reason that I was creating a testing company in financial services was because I had worked for um, a testing company in the HR space in my earlier career. And so I've really felt like there was a role for, in essence, a test publisher in financial services. And again, that's why we're now working with Dr. Brad Klontz. We partner with Dr. John Grable on our risk tolerance assessment. So we really try to publish a broad range of tests now, but we did start with the assessment that went along with The Millionaire Next Door.
1: As I'm framing this question, I'm like, it's self-explanatory, but it's not. Like, why are yeah. you understanding your personality types so important? Or why does it interest you so much?
0: Right. Well, I think it interests me, again, going back to an experience like I shared with you earlier, but also because, you know, personality can impact so many different things about our life, right? It impacts... Career choice and the way that we um, establish friendships and all those kinds of things, and so I think what I saw again in the industry, and I, I came into the industry certainly from very much the outside. You know, I shared with you that you know I'm not a financial planner, certainly not a financial expert, but came into the industry from a different perspective, and so I knew how important personality was in predicting future outcomes, and so I really felt like there was a place for that in financial services particularly with you know firms that were looking for you know or identifying customers or future you know clients of theirs as well as with advisors and working with clients right especially with couples right so if i have couples that are really really different in terms of their personal you know members of a household that are really different how am i going to communicate with them you know what's the likelihood that one is going to be really sticking to a budget and the other might be challenged at it you know how can i reach both members so you know there's a there's a place for understanding personality and you know we do it in a very efficient way but certainly advisors are doing it all the time through observation and interviews and things like that
1: what i appreciate about what you're doing at data points is like you said we do it all the time advisors do it couples do it we do it on mm-hmm. ourselves but you bring as your i guess Statement. I think it's a a statement, a mission statement. I don't know which part of it is, but you bring the science of building. There's the science of building wealth, Mm -hmm. and I think Mm -hmm. what you're really, you guys are doing is bringing this science to how we see our personality types and so forth. On personality types, if we speak about rigid to dynamic, where we're able to change, what do you see our personality types in terms of their ability to change, or are there parts that just consistently stay the same?
0: It's a tough one because, you know, all of us want to think that we can, you know, be very, very different if we wanted to. Right. Tomorrow I could wake up and be, you know, an Instagram influencer. I couldn't. But let's just pretend that I uh, you know, think that way. A lot of us do. But the truth is our, our personality is pretty stable it does ebb and flow as we get older. If I start working with a coach or a therapist or someone that is really focused on helping me change and I'm engaged in that change, then there is an opportunity that my personality may, may shift. But generally it's pretty stable. And you know, we could argue about whether or not that's good or bad, but from a helping a client improve perspective, if I can predict what they might do, then I can help them pr- potentially avoid that. So, for example, we know that clients who are high on the personality factor of agreeableness. we talked a little bit about this, very friendly, easy to work with. you're probably going to really enjoy that experience, but they may be challenged when people uh, you know ask them for things, right, adult children, or, you know neighbors, whatever it might be. They they may kind of veer off their financial plan because they're so friendly. So how can we give that client tips, tricks, methods to help them you know, be able to say no when they need to? So again, going back to your question, personality is fairly stable. And, and it's important too that we're measuring personality, particularly for things like risk tolerance. We don't have to go there necessarily, but a lot of tests that are out there are really measuring how we feel right now about investing. So if everything is up, I'm feeling great about it. I'm going to tell you I'm super risk tolerant. That's not a great way to measure risk tolerance. It's got to be something that's more stable about the client so that we can anticipate what they're going to do during a down market. So that's kind of Are you how suggesting
1: that a one-page questionnaire on a KYC isn't provisioned? <laughs> I don't know. Did I say that out loud? Uh, no, no oh, actually, yeah. Yeah. I think it's great to speak to that. Like for yeah. listeners listening, and we have a variety. We don't just focus on financial planners. There's right. mental health practitioners. There's uh, people who aren't even in the field, just interested in this human experience of money. Yeah, but but talk about that, like how we can anticipate mm-hmm. the future, mm-hmm. how we might react versus like right here and there, and what are some suggestions that you would give anybody on how we can better anticipate?
0: Yeah. So, you know, again, part of test development, and any kind of, you know, scientific test development is making sure that our tests are able to be, you know, related to you know, statistically outcomes, right? So how can I use, for example, again, personality, conscientiousness is one of the best predictors of job performance that's out there. Well, volatility, composure, and investor confidence and judgment are some of the best predictors of what investors will do during a down market. So, if we can show that statistically, and then use those assessments with clients, we can be confident that we're actually able to anticipate what they're going to do. It's not an—it's certainly not an exact science. There's a lot of mm-hmm. error. You know, we're trying to measure things that we can't see, and that's hard. But it is important to have some demonstrated ability to relate to things that are outside of the test. So some of the research that we've done has, you know, again, looked at things like, like what I was sharing with you, that, that emotional side of investing. And, you know, that relates to things like whether or not a client will buy, hold, or sell during a down market. So that's, you know, the kinds of things we want to see that when, you know, if, if I was working with a firm and they were trying to create an assessment we would want to be able to demonstrate things like that if that's you know again something that is important to the firm
1: and I think it's so insightful for the advisor and the client there's a statement until we make the unconscious conscious they'll continue to direct our life and we'll call it fate so it sounds like these personality tests I I, I hesitated saying test because of my next question that uh, these understanding our personalities can definitely help us and I say help not completely solved the mystery. But I read a blog post that you wrote called Why Avoid Personality Type Tests. So what's the nuance here between understanding our personality versus these type tests that you talk about in this blog post? And I understand I just put you on the spot because I didn't prepare you for that one.
0: No, that's okay. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. So thinking about the scientific measurement of things that we can't see. Right. That's kind of the focus of what we do at data points. It's what psychometricians do, you know, whether we're talking about people that are, you know, creating personnel assessments for leaders or whatever it might be. And a lot of the assessments that are out there that pigeonhole clients into different buckets, right? So you can think about some very well-known assessments that are out there. I just heard another podcast about the Enneagram and, and the, the problems with it from a scientific perspective. Myers-Briggs kind of has these same things as well. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of science behind their development as well as demonstrating those relationships that I talked about before, right? Can I use the Myers-Briggs to, to predict what my client's going to do in six to 12 months, you know, when the market declines? Probably not. It's not created that way. There's a lot of, unfortunately, with those kinds of tests, there's a lot of similar kind of characteristics to fortune telling. So if I tell you, you know, Sean, sometimes you're very confident in what you're doing, but sometimes you question yourself and you'd say, yeah, that, that sounds like me. Or, you know, sometimes you're, you're on time and you're feeling like you can really accomplish all your goals, but sometimes you're feeling like you're just not able to get anything done.
1: Uh, somehow you got inside How of me. This I is know right. you? Yeah. Right.
0: And so tests like those and, you know, a lot of the quizzes that you'll find out there that are for fun, they do that because, you know, they, they apply to everybody and so they're easy. And so we shy away from those. We don't use any of those kinds of methodologies to create our assessments. We use really, you know, standard test development processes to create the assessments that we use. And then for example, since we publish the Klant's Money Scripts inventory, we also, you know, look at that scientific research that goes along with that, you know, type of assessment as well in order to be confident that it's doing what it says it's doing. And unfortunately, those type indicators just often don't. And and the other thing, you know, we see this too with with advisors that have used it in the past. They've talked about it. The client is pigeonholed, right? So all of a sudden I'm an INFJ. What if I want to coach that client? What if I want to help them? What's the direction? Where are we going? How am I going to move them to a different bucket? You're not sure if you should focus on the I or the N, the whatever it might be. And so I think by using an assessment that has a clear kind of measurement process and model, you're able to use those results for communication and coaching and things like that. So I could probably talk about that all day, but I would probably start boring people.
1: <laughs> I, I'm curious. So like say the Enneagram, I forget which one, because I've honestly don't necessarily like these personality type tests because I usually have come back as like growing up, I was super shy and I was always told my personality was introvert and I'm shy. And, I just believed it and it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It seemed oh, wow. like, I know I did the Enneagram. My wife loves it, but I can't remember which one. But the difference I'm hearing between that and the Kant's Money script is the scientific like, method that you understand how it was created.
0: I think a better example would be like, like the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram. Versus the big five measure of personality. A okay. big uh, Yeah. So that's a very scientific, well-researched model of personality, which said, again, the ocean model, maybe you, you've heard mm-hmm. of that, right? So openness and conscientiousness, agreeableness. And what that means is essentially that model has been supported through different research studies and we kind of can see patterns across different areas right a different different academic areas whether it's psychology or whatever it might be and so we can be confident in that model and so if you create a test based on a model like that you're you're more confident in how you know you're going about the measurement of those things because you've seen all this past research and you also are relying on the research that has demonstrated again relationships between conscientiousness and following a budget for example whereas the other tests don't have that model. There's no support for those categories. They were kind of dreamed up. I won't go that far. But so there's not as much evidence for the model that underlies the test as well as the way that it's measured or the the characteristics are measured. So that's really the kind of the difference between something like a type indicator and a test that's measuring, again, a well-researched model of personality.
1: With the models that you guys are using, this well-researched mm-hmm. models, mm-hmm. we've talked about how personality, personalities, like you said, are relatively stable, but we can use that insight to anticipate and make predictions in the future. You're working with financial planners, but also financial mm-hmm. coaches and therapists. How Have you noticed, I guess, when the financial coaches or therapists are engaging with this, where I feel like just naturally their, their focus might be more on the behavior side, Maybe explain how have you noticed these individuals using your data to really start to get to some of that deeper, maybe second order levels of change?
0: Mm, Yeah. So great point too, that, you know, they can certainly be used in different ways, right? And at different, different levels. I would say those that have, of our clients that are more focused on financial coaching are using assessments alongside again you know a standard coaching process or methodologies that they have related to you know just feeling more confident about finances and and so forth so one of the tests that's often used in coaching is the client's money scripts inventory so measuring things like a client's money avoidance and and looking at their responses to those statements can help you know facilitate conversations certainly but then also change kind of mindset. So one of our clients is Maggie Klockengay, Make a Money Mindshift is her company. And she uses the Quants Money, In- Money Scripts inventory to facilitate change using kind of this ladder exercise that really helps the client move from you know one belief that might be holding them back from achieving their goals and kind of gradually shifting that belief. So if the belief is I would be a nervous wreck if I didn't have money saved, you know, for an emergency, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But maybe we could shift that to be something like, I feel better when I have money saved for an emergency, right? And so it kind of shifts the way we're viewing money and and the, the client's belief. And then, of course, we have financial therapists, so licensed therapists and psychologists who use our assessments as part of a broader assessment process of the client. Right, so it, that's going to include in-depth interviews and all of those things that go along with, you know, again, a therapeutic intervention and things like that. So it really does depend on on our clients' background and their focus. I would say the majority of our clients tend to be financial planners, so they're mm-hmm. maybe not going that far in depth, mm-hmm. but certainly we have, like you said, coaches and therapists that use our assessments as well.
1: With having that, like clients in all the like the realms, like we just talked about, financial planner, mm-hmm. coaching, therapy. Do you ever see a future where, like, they instead of being siloed, they're kind of collaborating mm, and working mm-hmm, together mm-hmm. and using your assessments.
0: Right, right. Yeah, so, you know, certainly we've seen, you know, and I, I think that this is becoming, you know, within the industry, we're seeing this more and more. So having, you know, a behavioral officer within your firm or an outsourced behavioral officer. I know Ashley, Ashley Quam is works with us. She's doing that kind of work for firms who don't maybe have that in-house. And so, you know, I I think that that I can see a future where, you know, larger financial planning firms will have those folks in-house as part of the work that they do. It's inevitable, I
1: think. Mm -hmm. When it comes to clients, whether that's your advisors, coaches or therapists, or the clients using the, the questionnaires, what have you learned over the years on people's money mindsets? how rigid those can be, how malleable they can be?
0: Yeah. So again, we see, thankfully, from a psychometric perspective, we see little change in terms of, you know, retesting, right? So a lot of our advisors will administer, you know, if it's a personality test or risk tolerance assessment, maybe every year, every two years, something like that. So we don't see a ton of change there and and that we wouldn't expect to. We do see, and we have advisors that use our sort of nudging tool within our alongside our assessments where they're asking clients to rate change over time like how they're doing adopting new behaviors again depending on the focus of the firm and the advisor we'll see you know change in certain areas but they do have to be concrete so for example again going back to personality right so if I'm agreeable, I'm probably going to be agreeable in a couple of years, even if I work with somebody that tells me to not, to not be that way. But if instead you're measuring something like frugality, which is a very kind of focused, we call it a competency. It's, it's a little more concrete, right? Okay. I can understand the behaviors I need to engage in in order to be frugal. That tends to be a little more successful than using a general personality test to, you know, kind of change, you know, concrete behaviors, if that makes sense. We do offer a lot of different tests and they have different purposes mm-hmm. and, and some are more effective than others.
1: You bring up the agreeableness. I feel like it is correct. When I was browsing through your, your blogs, it was called the last thing you need when building wealth. And it's being <laughs> agreeable. I was curious. Yeah, I mean, headlines are always headlines, but wh- why was it agreeableness? And I've got a follow-up question, but first I want to hear why you chose being agreeableness is the, the last thing you need.
0: Yeah, so maybe that was a little, that was, was that marketing? I don't know, maybe that was marketing. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, yeah it might be some <laughs> marketing, right, yeah. right, right. Because of the way it can impact your ability to stay on your own track, that's why we focused on that particular um, mm-hmm. component. And because it sounds like it's great to be agreeable. And I think that, again, if you think about the clients of advisors, they want folks that are friendly and that they enjoy talking to and that they enjoy working with and it's a lot easier to have a client shaking that you know nodding their head and saying yes and agreeing to everything but you know the flip side is that that can lead to negative financial decisions mm-hmm. maybe i don't understand what my advisor said but i was i just wanted to kind of say yes and i wanted the, him to like me and you know those kinds of things you know my adult children come and ask for a loan or a gift or something like that. They can't cover their car payment, whatever it might be. This is like the 10th month that they've asked for this. I'm I'm still saying yes. But meanwhile, that's taking me away from my financial goals. And so, again, all personality characteristics have kind of a positive and a negative mm-hmm. aspect to them, no matter where you are. And so that's why we focused on that one. And mm-hmm. again, maybe mm-hmm. the title was a little bit of marketing, but...
1: And uh, that's yeah. okay. Yeah. It got me to read it. And what, what got me thinking is that like, yeah, being agreeable, like you said, as a, an advisor, hey, that seems so wonderful. But underneath, I was just curious, if, like, if, if we're highly agreeable, could there be, and this is just me thinking it aloud, a lack of, not lack of, not as much satisfaction because we might be agreeing mm-hmm. to things that are actually counter to what we, we truly want, but we're so agreeable, we're just like, sure, sure, like your car example. Like maybe you want to teach children that they should be more independent and reliant, but I'm agreeing and giving the money
0: right great point so you know there's there's kind of an aspect of self esteem or self confidence as well it's kind of mm-hmm. wrapped up in mm-hmm. there so if if that high agreeableness is coupled with a lack of confidence and maybe a lack of extroversion, so that mm-hmm. often has some of this assertiveness tied into it you know you could see a world where even though i left your office and i agreed to everything i'm kind of feeling down because i didn't i didn't really get what i wanted or, or didn't ask for what I wanted because I was so focused on making sure that you liked me um, during that meeting. And so, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And it, it's another, you know, perhaps reason to, you know, during, while, while you're bringing people on or clients on board to make sure that you're measuring things like confidence and, you know, you're asking if they understand things and, and that kind of thing as
1: well. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, on this ocean model, it sounds like we're treading right. water on people-pleasing uh, tendencies right. there. Right. As you continue on the, the legacy that you and your father created with data points and your deep interest in personality types, what excites you with the work you're doing, whether it's mm. outside of data points, within data points?
0: Yeah, I, I think you know, kind of where we're heading with data points. And I said data points. I mirrored you, even though I usually say data points. Maybe I'm being, I I think I'm being agreeable. agreeable.
1: (laughs) Is this a Canadian way to say it? I don't know. Maybe so. Maybe I was like trying to be
0: more Canadian. I don't know. So what I think that I'm certainly excited about and where we've wanted to head with data points for a long time, it's really trying to look across clients and firms and look at sort of this aggregate high level you know, data set that we have, right? And start looking at trends that can help all advisors and all clients. So again, today we present back information to the advisor and the client and they, you know, get reports and they can learn about themselves. But I think there's a lot of value at that higher level as well. And, you know, we are working with a few universities and things like that on some research, but I'm just really excited to to be able to do some of the things that you can only do when you have you know, lots of data mm-hmm. around these things. And, and, you know, again, we work with Brad Klontz. He's got, you know, tens of thousands of folks that have taken the, the MoneyScripts inventory now. And so it's great to see some trends across that as well. So those are the kinds of things that we're, that interest me the most, certainly. And I think at a firm level, even, even a smaller RA or something like that should be very beneficial to be able to see those kinds of trends.
1: I, I just appreciate the, the focus on data. <laughs> there I said, yep. on, on, you're focused on using the evidence and research to come up with these tools so that advisors, coaches, therapists, clients are not being steered in directions that might be uh, wandering.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. Yeah.
1: So my final question that I have asked everybody is, let's imagine that you are now at end of life and mm-hmm. whatever age that is, it is. This is an adaptation of a Brad Klon's question, by the way. Ah, okay, uh, yeah. You're sitting on a front porch, and you're looking out at a view that brings you complete peace, ease, and contentment, and you decide to bring out a notebook and write a letter to your children's children on what you learned to have a happy, healthy relationship with money. What would be a theme to that letter?
0: The theme to that letter would be to put money in perspective and in the right order in your life. And, and that's does not mean that that's first. There should be other things that are first in your life, whether that's your beliefs or your you know, family, relationships, contributions to, to society, those kinds of things. When, whether that's big or small, right? So whether that's bringing your neighbor's dinner or it's, you know, winning the Nobel Peace Prize. So money needs to be in the correct order. And that would be the theme of what I would write.
1: Money in the correct order. Well, thank you for that.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And thank you for taking the time. Thanks for all the wonderful work you're doing. For listeners who are interested in your books, your work, Mm -hmm. where would you point them towards?
0: Yeah, so definitely datapoints.com. We can go there and learn about you know, what we do, you can take a test. So we have a personality test on our website. It's datapoints.com personality. So it's a big five measure. And, you know, you can get a report and learn a little bit more about yourself or, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn. That would be great.
1: Well, thank you so much for spending the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in this week. If you are still listening, that means you might've enjoyed this episode. If that's the case, you can support the show in two ways. The first is head over to your podcast player of choice and subscribe to the show. The second, share this episode with a friend, family, or colleague, someone who you think might enjoy it. Until next week, have yourself a great one. I'm on a mountain without a top.
0: My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write
1: freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life, it's just the win in the sea.